Today on the Matt Wall Show, the Biden administration has come up with a great plan to solve the crime epidemic. They're going to give out free crack pipes. We'll discuss also Airbnb is now banning people from its service based on their political views. Plus, the teachers union hangs on to masking desperately, even as most everyone else has moved on. And Showtime puts out a trailer for the most absurdly racist documentary ever produced. But it's racist against white people, so, you know, it's okay. We'll talk about all that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. So did you know that one out of three Americans regularly suffer from nausea? We've all experienced that horrible feeling, whether it's in the backseat of a car, staring at your phone, uh, after one too many on a night out with friends, or even just anxiety of a workday. Uh, we've all been through that. I've been through it myself. As, as you know, I'm, I'm a nausea sufferer. I'm, I am in that victim group, that community. So you've got to check out Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, uh, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. How it works is Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that causes and controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now... Through Relief Band, it is finally available to the masses. Plus, the product is 100% drug-free. It's non-drowsy, which is my favorite thing about it. And it provides all-natural, long-lasting relief with zero side effects for as long as needed. Relief Band makes a great gift for any time of year. Right now, they've got an exclusive offer just for my listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code Walsh, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. That's the best offer you'll ever find for Relief Band anywhere. You have to use my code. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code Walsh for 20% off plus free shipping. In yet another case of reality becoming indistinguishable from satire, it's being reported this week that the Biden administration will be using tax money to distribute crack pipes in the inner city. Or as outlets like The Independent and MSN reported, GOP outraged at Biden plan to fund crack pipe distribution. Conservatives pounce. Because the story, of course, is about Biden's ill-tempered critics who are making such a big deal out of Biden giving out crack pipes. The story is not that, you know, Biden is giving out crack pipes. But putting, a, putting the corporate media spin aside, let's, let's look at the details of this plan. A, a plan which was concocted, it must be noted, by a president who happens to have a crackhead for a son. This is perhaps the strangest example of political nepotism in American history. But the Washington Free Beacon reports, quote, the Biden administration is set to fund the distribution of crack pipes to drug addicts as part of its plan to advance racial equity. The $30 million grant program, which closed applications on Monday and will begin in May, will provide funds to nonprofits and local governments to help make drug use safer for addicts. Included in the grant, which is overseen by the Department of Health and Human Services, are funds for smoking kits slash supplies. A spokesman for the agency told the Washington Free Beacon, that these kits will provide pipes for users to smoke crack cocaine, crystal meth, and any illicit substance. Now, apologies ahead of time for letting you know about this program only after the application period had already closed. So you'll just have to budget for crack pipes the old-fashioned way, I guess. Which, uh, not that this is the main point at all, but how expensive can crack pipes really be? I mean, I, I admit I don't know. But, but even if it were a good idea to facilitate the crack habit of crackheads... Is this something that they even need? I mean, is, is there any crackhead out there who really wants to smoke crack but just can't scrounge together the money for a pipe? And at any rate, if such budgetary concerns were preventing people from smoking crack, one might think that that's a good thing. In any case, back to the report, it says, HHS said the kits aim to reduce the risk of infection when smoking substances with glass pipes, which can lead to infections through cuts and sores. Applicants for the grants are prioritized if they treat a majority of underserved communities, including African-Americans and LGBTQ plus persons, as established under President Joe Biden's executive order on advancing racial equity. Democratic-run cities such as San Francisco and Seattle have distributed smoking kits to residents before. Some local governments, however, in recent years backed away from their smoking kit programs over concerns that they enable drug use. <laughs> you think? I mean, that's literally the whole point of the, of the program is to enable drug use. Hey, wait a second. I think this plan to enable drug use is uh, enabling drug use. It says Louisville, Kentucky, for example, allowed convenience stores to sell, to sell smoking kits, but later banned them 
Legislators in Maryland ditched their distribution plan after facing backlash from local law enforcement and African-American leaders. Okay, so the, so the problem isn't that crack pipes aren't affordable. It's that back alley crack pipes, crack pipes that you buy on the street, might be dirty. And you want to make sure that we provide uh, clean crack pipes so that people will not become sick or get infected as they inhale poison directly into their bodies. A little more from the report. It says, Sergeant Clyde Boatwright, president of the Maryland Fraternal Order of Police, said government resources are better spent on preventing drug abuse rather than making it safer. Quote, if we look at more of a preventive campaign as opposed to an enabling campaign, I think it would offer an opportunity to have safer communities with fewer people who are dependable, uh, depending on these substances. Funding for the harm reduction program is provided through the Democrat, the uh, Democrats' American Rescue Plan, which the Senate passed along party lines after Vice President Kamala Harris cast a tie-breaking vote. Other equipment that qualifies for funding include syringes, vaccinations, disease screenings, condoms, and fentanyl strips. The grant program will last three years and include 25 awards of up to $400,000. Um, I mean, how do you like that? We're, we're, we're lumping the vaccines in with crack pipes and fentanyl strips and heroin syringes. I mean, you make of that what you will. So a few things jump out at you about all this. Aside from just how utterly and incomprehensibly insane it is. Um, the first is that the Biden administration and the leftist regime generally do not care about the actual lives of average Americans or Americans living in poor communities or anybody else. Now, it's not that they actively hate you, because that's something I hear a lot. Oh, they hate you. Um, no, I, I think that that's it's, it's something even worse than that, actually. It's just that they don't care at all. You're a means to an end. You as an individual are irrelevant. And that's why they think nothing of setting up crack pipe distribution in neighborhoods where, by the way, they don't live. It's also why they thought nothing of encouraging and cheering on rioting and looting in the places they don't live. They've stopped prosecuting crime in the places they don't live. Or if they do live in these places, they make sure that they have armed security while they leave everybody else to wallow in the chaos. Human suffering is irrelevant. Because what matters first and foremost, of course, is their own power. And secondly, their ideological dominance. And that's all that matters. Second point is that you know, these people have no understanding of human nature whatsoever. Probably because they care so little for human beings. So they haven't really stopped to think about the subject of human nature. And so they say they want to reduce harm by distributing crack pipes to crack addicts or, or giving out clean needles to heroin addicts. And the idea is that if people are going to be doing this stuff anyway, then you might as well make it as safe as possible. But the problem is that there is no safe way to engage in a fundamentally destructive activity. You might as well give a suicidal guy a helmet right before he jumps out of the 30th story window. Hey, if you're going to kill yourself, you might as well do it safely. Because that's what this is. I mean, smoking crack, using heroin, that's, this is a, a, a more drawn out form of suicide. It is absolute total self-destruction. All these programs accomplish because they can't make these activities safe or even less harmful to any significant degree. All they accomplish then is to encourage it. And this is basic human nature, which again, the left does not understand. The easier it is to do something, the fewer consequences attached to it, the cheaper it is, uh, the more it is facilitated by other people, the fewer hurdles we put in the way, the more that people will do that thing. Seems pretty simple to those of us with common sense and who understand human nature. And third, we see again the bigotry of low expectations, except it's not really low expectations or even no expectations. This is negative expectations in that the left expects people, especially people in so-called marginalized groups, to act in abhorrent and self-destructive ways. In fact, they want them to. And that's what this is really about. They want them to because it makes them easier to control and exploit. Now let's get to our five headlines. We 
With the ever-increasing number of car makes and models that are on the market now, it's, it's impossible to stock all the parts you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why endure then the pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning often, uh, about the specifications of your vehicle only to have the guy behind the counter order the parts on his computer anyway? Why not just cut out the middleman, make it easier on yourself? You have, you have computers at home, you have computers in your pocket with access to rockauto.com. So just go right there to rockauto.com. Look, they're a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clips, clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands and specifications and prices that you prefer. And of course, as you know, the prices are the same for everyone. And uh, they're also, it's a great selection and uh, low prices for everyone, no matter who you are. So go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck and write Walsh in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. All right, so follow up, another follow up on the Joe Rogan story. Um, on Tuesday night, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, iconic podcaster Joe Rogan, who uh, had the number one most listened to podcast globally on Spotify in 2021, responded on his podcast to the video compilation of him using the N-word, saying bluntly, this is a political hit job. Variety reported, quote, last Friday, Spotify pulled 70 episodes of the Joe Rogan experience from its platform dating from 2009 to 2018, which the streamer said it uh, did at the request of Rogan and his team. That's what they claim, anyway. They claim that uh, Joe Rogan is the one who decided that he wants to pull these episodes down. And I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not sure if he's if he has spoken to that or admitted that it was his choice or not. But speaking with his guest, comedian Akash Singh, Rogan asserted, quote, in a lot of ways, all this is a relief because that video had always been out there, but this is a political hit job. And so they're taking all this stuff that I've ever said that's wrong and they're smushing it all together. But it's good because it makes me address some things that I really wish wasn't out there. And then his uh, guest responds, you know why I'm proud of you? Because I think comedians have for years done this immature thing where it's like we don't apologize. We say whatever we want, but you can apologize if you say some wild stuff and uh, you apologized and you own it and that was good for you. And then Rogan said, you, you should apologize if you regret something. This idea that you should never apologize, like if you regret something, I don't think there's anything wrong with apologizing, but I think do think you have to be very careful not to apologize for nonsense. Well, so th this is interesting because Joe Rogan acknowledges that this is a this was all a political hit job, which of course is it was it is um, a highly coordinated and funded political hit job, and there are people that have looked into the organizations behind this, and there are this is this is not you know we, we as always we hear about clips and things resurfacing. When there's a compilation video of every time someone used a bad word dating back to 2009, I mean, we're going back 13 years, and someone has combed through 13 years of episodes, and by the way, episodes that are long too. I mean, each episode is like two or three hours long, and someone's combed through that and made a compilation like this. That, that's not a video that resurfaces. It didn't just bubble to the surface on its own and somebody stumbled across it. It's, hey, what's this? Oh, it's Joe Rogan saying the N-word a bunch of times. No, there's a lot of effort and time and money that went into finding this stuff, putting it together, and then also <clears throat> getting it out there, distributing it, much like the crack pipes from Joe Biden. Um, so yeah, is it a political hit job? Absolutely. Coordinated, funded, but then he also says, "Well, yeah, I, I should. It's it's good for me to have apologized." But why? If you know that it's a political hit job, then why would you apologize? But because the question, as always, when you say, "Well, I should apologize if I regret something," my question and the question you should always keep in mind before you issue any kind of apology. And this is this is a this is a real simple question you have to know. Who are you apologizing to? Who is the aggrieved party? You've been doing this podcast for 13 years. These are all things that you already said. 
if somebody was personally hurt or damaged by any of this, then they probably would have already told you. And if they were, if there's someone personally in your life who is damaged by something that you do or say, whatever that happens to be, and uh, and they, you know they tell you that, or and you feel bad about it, um, then go ahead and apologize to them. I'm not against apologizing, generally speaking. That's that's like a, a sociopath. If you say, "Oh, I'm never going to apologize for anything that I ever do in my life ever," now, that's not the point. The point is, if you cause harm to an individual, then you seek out that individual and you apologize to them. Because they're the aggrieved party. They're the ones who have been harmed. But the public isn't harmed. What 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 I, I'm I'm a member of the public. I'm I'm okay. So nobody in the public has been harmed. Um, the people who have dug this stuff up, they're not harmed by it. Quite the contrary. They love it. They think it's great. They were looking for it. They were excited. You know, that's that's the irony is that all the people pretending to be offended by Joe Rogan saying the N-word, when they, when they heard the video, every single one of them said, we got them. I mean, they had smiles on their faces. They were gleeful about it. Harmed? No. They, they, should, be, they should be thanking you because they're so happy about it. So even if you regret it, oh, you regret saying it. Okay. I mean, you can, you can regret it, but who are you apologizing to? This is apology as performance for the mob. It's an apology as a, you know, as a kind of, as a, a ritual act of, of, of humiliation and submission. And that you can't do. And you can't do it because it is a political hit job. And when you apologize, you make it a lot harder for the next person. Okay, someone has to draw the line in the sand. Someone has to do it. Someone actually has to stand up against cancel culture and say, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to play this game. Go ahead and do your worst, cancel culture. But you're not going to get anything out of me. You know, you, you, you can play your tune all you want. I'm not going to dance to it. Someone has to do that. And until someone does, um, it's, this is just going to keep happening. There are going to be more victims and more victims. And the reason why I was disappointing for Joe Rogan is because uh, he's, he's a, even though he seems like a, a nice guy, it's just it's disappointing because he's in a position of such power. You got $100 million. You're in a $100 million contract. It was a rumble, the you know the the YouTube alternative came along a couple days ago and said, "Hey, we'll give you a hundred million dollars. Come do your your show on our platform." So you're sitting, you know, you are you are sitting in the in the pilot seat, and you've got all the power here. And when you've got a hundred million dollars, like what can they really take from you? And if you're in that position with $100 million and a huge platform and an enormous audience of millions and millions of people who will follow you anywhere, you don't really need Spotify. You can go, you can go, you can go to Rumble. You can go anywhere. You can go to your, you can just make your own website, make your own platform, do your own thing entirely. Make something that is entirely owned by you so that nobody can take it from you. Start your own subscription service. I mean, there's so much that you can do if you're Joe Rogan. And even if you lose some listeners along the way, you lose a little bit of money, you get $100 million from your last contract. You're fine. You got absolutely nothing to lose. And if you're not going to draw that line in the sand, sitting there with that much power, then you just make it so much harder for the next guy. And the next guy is not going to have all the power that you do. That's what's frustrating about it. All right, next, uh, you know, as, as more and more people see the light about masking, still we have, especially the teachers unions who are holding on to it desperately. They don't want to give it up. And here, Randy Weingarten, teachers union boss, explains why, uh, you know, we might have to keep masking into the foreseeable future. 
the issue becomes how do we make sure that the entire community in a school feels safe and welcome? And I don't think that we, there's, when you get to COVID, there's no, no risk. The real issue becomes how do we make sure that everybody feels safe? So if we don't have a mask mandate in school, we got to make sure that kids and teachers are not stigmatized for wearing masks. And we better do everything we can to make sure the ventilation is working in, um, in classrooms so that there's fresh air and, and that we're doing everything in our power to make sure that this virus is not transmissible. Well, she said it there at the very beginning, and, and this has been, this has always been obvious that it's about, it's about feelings. It's about, uh, that's what, that's what the, the masks really are. As I, as I've always said, um, that the reason why kids are being forced to mask, it's not for them. It's never been for them uh, because they've never been at any, at any serious risk from COVID. It's not even for the adults physically. It's, it's not to keep the adults safe. It's just to make the adults feel better. And so that's really the trade-off. It is the, the um, it's got nothing to do with physical well-being for anybody. And even if it was physical well-being, it would still be evil to sacrifice the psychological well-being of children for the physical, for the sake of the physical well-being of adults. That would still be quite an evil thing. But actually, the trade-off has been um, we're going to sacrifice the psychological well-being of children by forcing them to wear masks every day. They can't see each other's faces. They can't show their own face. Um, teaching them th- that the air is toxic, that everybody around them is toxic and all that. We sacrifice their psychological well-being for the sake of the psychological well-being of adults. And not all adults, because my psychological well-being has, has never been helped by this, uh, but by the most paranoid and self-centered, hypochondriac, you know, obsessive-compulsive adults. That's the trade-off that people like Randy Weingarten have endorsed this entire time. All right, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, Airbnb has banned Michelle Malkin, blocking the right-wing political commentator from booking reservations on its platform. Uh, and this has finally been by, confirmed by the company. Malkin, who has aligned herself in recent months with Nick Fuentes' America First movement, said on t- Twitter Wednesday that she and her husband had been banned from staying at Airbnb locations. The vacation rental company deleted Malkin's account because of her participation in the 2021 American Renaissance Conference, according to an email Malkin posted online. Uh, The email said, it has come to our attention that you are a keynote speaker for the 2021 American Renaissance Conference earlier this month in Tennessee. Airbnb's community policies prohibit people who are members of or actively associated with known hate groups. Due to your promotion and participation in a known white nationalist and white supremacist conference, we have determined that we will remove your account from Airbnb. This is consistent with action we've taken to ban people associated with this conference in past years. The platform confirmed uh, Malkin's ban in a statement to the Daily Beast on Wednesday. Consistent with our policies, if we become aware of users who are members of or are actively affiliated with hate groups, we remove them from Airbnb. Now, what Airbnb has not provided, as far as I know thus far, is uh, any example, any other example of them doing this banning someone for being associated with a, quote, known hate group. We should also note, by the way, that Michelle Malkin, who's uh, being banned from Airbnb and being deplatformed as a white supremacist, is not white, which you would think might be relevant here. Not exactly sure how you can be a white supremacist when you're not white. But this is... um, what, one of those things that even people on the right, even now, s- some of them kind of skimming over because they say, oh, well, Michelle Malkin, she's, she's too extreme for my taste. She's, uh, she's uh, getting involved with Nick Fuentes and all this. And so, uh, that's, that's, we're not going to be worried about that. Well, you should worry about it for, for, for reasons of basic self-preservation. This is a definite. This is a definite escalation here. It's a quite a foreseeable escalation, but it's an escalation because at least 
platforms like Twitter and YouTube and all that, Spotify and all the rest of them, um, when they deplatform you for your opinions, well, they can always claim, they can always say that, well, this is a platform for expressing ideas and these ideas that you're, that you express are harmful and dangerous and all. And even if that's nonsense, since it's totally bogus, they are at least platforms for expressing ideas. That's why the platforms exist. But Airbnb is just a, a, a place where you rent vacation homes. Or if you're going to stay in an area for a few days and you, you rent out, it's the, they're not platforms for the expression of ideas. Um, as, as far as I know, Michelle Malkin was not, she wasn't hosting the event at the Airbnb location. She wasn't even having an after party for everybody afterwards. She was just staying there. And it's not that, Air, that Airbnb is saying, oh, you, you can't stay uh, at an Airbnb location a, be, while you're attending this event. It's like you can never stay at another location because we have decided that your opinions are unacceptable. Oh, because they're because you're associated with a with a hate group. And how do they determine uh, what is what's a hate group? Well, they determine it based on what groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center tell them. Well, the problem is that the Southern Poverty Law Center would say that all of us are are engaging in hate speech. They would certainly say it about me, and the, I'm sure they already have. I'm sure they would say if you asked them that the Daily Wire is a hate group. That's the, uh, that's, that's the beauty of that label, calling something hate speech or a hate group. It's so broad and so vague that you can apply it to anyone. And then when that becomes the pretense for um, taking away someone's right to access public accommodations, then you've just opened up the floodgates. And that, that's, what, that's what is happening here. I mean, anything can be hate speech. In fact, much of what I engage in, sure, a lot of it is hate speech. You know, I'm, I'm talking about things that I hate. Like, for, for example, uh, we, we started the show talking about Joe Biden's plan to distribute crack pipes. I hate that plan. I, I am very hateful towards the idea of giving out crack pipes. So is that hate speech? I, I guess. Um, I'm often accused of hate speech when it comes to the gender issue. Sure, yeah. A lot of hate speech there too. Um, I hate gender ideology. I think it's an evil and twisted thing. I hate when kids are being indoctrinated into it and harmed because of it and drugged and mutilated. I hate that. I really, really hate it. So hate speech? Yeah, I guess so. A lot of what I talk about with uh, on the pro-life issue is, is hateful because I hate the fact that we're killing, that we've killed 60 million babies. I really hate that. I, I hate the murder of babies. All of that could be called hate speech, I suppose. And the, the label is, is meant to be as fluid as that so that it can be applied to anything. And it's completely subjective. And if now that means you can't access public accommodations, you can't even stay. Oh, by the way, they also stopped her. Uh, they, also, they, they, they applied this to her husband as well, not just Michelle Malkin. Her husband, guilt by association. Her husband cannot stay at Airbnb properties because his wife has opinions that they don't like. What about her kids? Um, what about her uncles and aunts and cousins? I guess they're they're next in line. All right, here's something that um, I missed last week when I was gone, and um, I don't know if you missed it or not. You may have seen it, but I've had it on I, I've I've had it on the the docket here because I just it's the kind of thing I have to comment on. Professor Stephen Kirshner at uh, Fredonia University, in an interview, uh, here he is. We have a couple of clips. We'll play the first one. Here he is making the case for pedophilia. Listen. Imagine that an adult 
male uh, wants to have sex with a, a 12-year-old girl, imagine that she's a willing participant. A, a very standard, very widely held view that there's something deeply wrong about this, and it's wrong independent of it being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that it is, in fact, wrong. I think this is a mistake, and I think that exploring why it's a mistake will tell us not only things about adult child sex and statutory rape, but also about fundamental principles of morality. Fundamental principles of morality is worried about. Uh, and it gets worse. If you think that that's as bad as it could possibly get, there, there are many videos of this guy, which maybe you've seen floating around there. Um, this is, I hesitate to say that this is the worst because I haven't watched all the videos because I can't stomach them, but this is the worst one that I could stomach watching. Listen to what he says here. Well, there's a couple of things to say here. One is, even if you are looking for a threshold, let's say there's a threshold, I'm, I'm making this number up, but let's say it's at age eight. Um, still, that tells you that some adult child sex is permissible. Second, the notion that it's wrong even with a one-year-old is, is not quite obvious to me. There are reports in some cultures of grandmothers filleting their, uh, the baby boys to calm them down when, when a colicky. Now, I don't know if this is true, but this, this is sort of widely reported as occurring in, in, in at least one culture. And it, it working, that the grandmothers believe, believe this actually works. If this were to be true, and again, I don't know it to be true. If it were to be true, it's hard to see what would be wrong with it. So, yeah, I, I guess I think, no, I, I don't think there's a blanket period beyond which this is permissible. If we're interested in willing participation, which is the way I structured it, then yeah, there's a, there's a point below which people aren't willing participants in anything because they don't have intentions or they don't have the sort of mental states that allow for willing participation. But no, I, I don't. I don't think it's blanket wrong at any age. This is a college professor, um, philosophy professor, and he says that it's at no age is it necessarily wrong, going all the way down to. One, as you just heard him say. Um, hopefully, most people, at least most rational people, can see now that it's not a slippery slope. Um, there, there is an effort, <clears throat> an increasing effort by people, and it always starts in academia. Um, so we have it now in academia. We, we've seen it elsewhere, but this is not the first college professor we've heard in the last couple of months um, talking about normalizing pedophilia. And, and hopefully it's obvious by now that this is not a, some slippery slope conspiracy. This is, this is, uh, it is a slippery slope, but it's real and we're on it. And normalizing pedophilia is sort of the last, that's the last barrier to come down. And it's going to come down because all the rest have. You know, now it's now it's a matter of, of pure ideological momentum, and we also know it's going to happen for a couple other reasons. One is that, as I pointed out many times, you know, w- w- everything that's happening with gender is setting the stage for the normalization of, and you know, eventually the legalization of pedophilia. Because the whole, the whole, you know, this, this professor, of course, waves away this uh, this logic. But one of the reasons why pedophilia is a, is a is a hideous evil is that children cannot consent. They can't. They they don't have the psychological capacity. They don't have the mental faculties all in place to actually consent to do something like that. They, they, their, their brains are not fully formed yet. And so they can't possibly know what they're doing. And also the power dynamics and everything else between an adult and a child. So the, the child can't consent to it. But if you're arguing that a child can consent at the age of uh, 12 to chemical castration, um, because a boy wants to become a girl, that a 14-year-old girl can consent to have her breast chopped off, permanent life-altering decision, uh, or even that a three-year-old can make, a, make the decision to start transitioning their gender. If, if that's the argument that you're making, that almost everybody on the left makes, 
not just kooky college professors way out on the fringes. If that's the argument that you're making, then you have already started to tear down this last barrier by by claiming that children can consent to life-altering decisions, to life-altering sexual decisions. So this is uh, quite inevitable. And here's the latest on this from the local uh, ABC affiliate in Buffalo. It says, um, the Fredonia professor who you just heard there is being assigned to duties that do not include his physical presence on campus and will not have contact with students as an investigation continues following his his comments on adult child sex. Um, The the, uh, Fredonia released a response as soon as these videos came out. And the response from the, the statement from President Stephen H. Collison says, Fredonia is aware of a video posted online involving one of its professors. The views expressed by the professor are reprehensible and do not represent the values of Fredonia in any way, shape, or form. They are solely the professor's views. The matter is being reviewed. Oh, so they're going to they're gonna review it. They're investigating it. But he's still getting paid. And he still has a job. And my prediction is that you know, within a few weeks, he's going to be back on the job. They're, they're waiting for the, the heat to, to, to get off of them. Because this is not, by the way, they, this is not a surprise to them. This guy has been talking about this issue, and uh, he's been on this train of, of uh, normalizing and legalizing and justifying, validating pedophilia for years. They, they knew that he thought all of this. They even knew he was out doing interviews about it. They just didn't expect it would go viral and that uh, the wrong people would see it. So they're waiting for the heat to come off, and then they're going to, I guarantee, put them back on assignment. All right. Uh, final thing. Here's a CNN report about moms who come together in a parking lot every once in a while to, uh, to scream. Not exactly sure why, but let's watch and find out. Deep breath in. I mean, at first, you're you're a little nervous, right? Or a little like, can I do this? Is this is this appropriate? You feel lighter. You feel a complete release. Um, you feel it's it's nice to feel out of control. You want to chat, everybody? All right. Back in 2020, when we went into pandemic quarantine for the first time. I went instantly went remote with all my clients and started having conversation after conversation about the struggles that women and moms were having. One plus two makes three. I also have two little kids, so I was living what they were talking about. We were stuck at home. We couldn't see the people that helped us. Even therapy sessions were via Zoom. I could feel their anger through the screen. I could sense it in my own body connecting to theirs. And I would say to them, we just need to go into a field and scream. That was where it started. And then a year later, when we were still stuck in this pandemic, still experiencing a lot of the same overwhelm, we did it again um, in January of 2022. Okay, well, if you thought that liberal women couldn't get any more annoying, you stand corrected. I have an idea. How about you just uh, you just suck it up, buttercup? How's that for an idea? Control your emotions a little bit. Oh, we're so we're so stressed. We have to go out into the parking lot and scream, let everybody know it. What 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 happened to just you know I don't know being an adult, having a little bit of maturity. This this is this is how like this is how my my two year old handles her stress. A little bit of maturity. That's my idea. Just a thought. Let's get down to the comment section. Makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage. Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. All right, we'll start with our uh, brand spanking new video comments. Let's begin. Let's play uh, clip eight first. Hey, Matt, this is Joshua Royal Wathen. I am the proud author of the Sweet Baby Gang Anthem. With all the fun being had in the video comments, I wanted to submit one from myself with a new verse that I wrote just for you. Take a listen. Who saved Virginia after leaving there just for a day? 
Let me know what you think of it. If you like it, I'll create an official extended version and release it on Spotify. Uh, or if not, just cancel me. That's fine too. Uh, regardless, man, thank you so much for what you do and for allowing me to be a part of your show in this way. It's beautiful, Josh. It really, it, it almost, if I, if I could experience human emotion, I would have, I think I probably would have cried. Uh, and Joshua Royal is the, the poet laureate of the, of the Sweet Baby Gang. Uh, I, I think that's the best. I think we need to take that verse and make that the verse that we played before the comment. That's my, that's my, and we got to, that's the verse right there. As good as the verse is that we use, I think that's it. Wonderful. Beautiful. Um, what, what else is there to say? Let's go to, uh, let's play clip. This is a long one. Uh, clip six. Hey, Matt. My name is Jeff. With all this talk about voting going on the last couple of weeks, I wondered what you would make of a system of weighted voting. Not sure if any countries do this, but I like the idea of a system that has maybe up to 10 points. Uh, you get one when you come of age, another point when you turn 40, another when you're 60. Those ages could be tweaked, depending. Um, three more points for taking a series of tests, optional. Um, I would do economics, U.S. law, U.S. history, world history, and current world affairs. You could choose any one of those, up to three, get up to three points. And these are hard tests, I would, I would make them. You know, you sit for an hour, maybe two, 100 multiple choice questions, so you really have to know your stuff. The final four points I would give to having dependents, being a property owner, being a business owner, and serving in the military in some capacity. And you could argue about how many years of service or um, how many dependents, how big your business has to be, but you know, that's the general framework. And then there's a lot you could do with this system. You could knock felons back down to one point so they still get to vote, but it's not worth as much. And I like this because even your average citizen who starts a family, buys a house, starts a business, takes their test, is going to have a, a vote that's worth eight, nine, or ten, and people that just don't care all that much are just going to be stuck at a one or a two. So it really drives home the fact that you know stakeholders and people with skin in the game um, that put in the effort are going to have more of a say in how our countries run. Uh, very curious what you'd have to say about that. SBG for life. Thank you. Well, it's it's a better system than, than what we have right now. Um, but then again, pretty much any system is better. I think when it comes to any voting system, is better than what we have right now, where everyone is allowed to vote, no matter how ignorant, uninformed they happen to be, and their vote counts exactly the same as uh, as someone who actually knows what they're doing and is paying attention, and at least knows what universe and what galaxy and what country they're living in. So anything's better than that. I, I think that that is an improvement. Um, it's a creative idea. I'll give you that. I've never heard th that that concept before. So I like that we're having this conversation. Th like at least th this is a conversation we should we should actually be having on a, on a national level. So I like that. My only problem with it is that number one, you give it's, it gives too much weight to age. So there's I, I don't see any reason why say a sick someone who's sixty their vote should count more than someone who's thirty. I am a proponent of raising the voting age above 18, only because 18-year-olds are still kids, really. I mean, effectively, you're still a kid, and your brain isn't, isn't even fully developed yet until you're like 25, which is why I think you can make the argument for putting the voting age at 25. But then once you're fully an adult, um, and especially if you are, especially if you're an adult and you're married and you have a family and you have a job and all that and you're a taxpayer... Um, I don't see any reason why you would gain more credit just, just simply by getting older. So that's one problem. The other problem is, you know, you're, you're still talking about giving some kind of vote to people who have no skin in the game and have no idea what they're doing. And my point is that their vote should count for zero. They should have zero points. They should have zero say. If you have no skin in the game, you're not invested at all. Um, and uh, and you and you don't know anything about the system you're participating in, then you should get no vote at all. But again, it's a good conversation. Uh, 
Let's see. This is from Officer Derek Chauvin. I'm guessing not the one and only. Says it's stunning and brave that these woke warriors would take their masks off and risk COVID to infiltrate the SBG crowd. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how many show up today. I'm speaking at Texas A&M tonight at uh, 7 o'clock, and we talked yesterday about their, the leftist plan to, to infiltrate. And we'll see. They got to get 35. That's, their, that's what they wrote down on their little, uh, on their little chart. They got to get 35, and if they can't get 35, they're all going to walk away. So we'll see. Um, contextually obligated says, I normally love Matt's parenting advice, but this one stressed me out as a new mom. She's one years old now. So maybe I'm just paranoid, but I can't leave my daughter alone in the car for even a split second. I'm afraid I'd have a heart attack or spontaneously combust before I get back to the car and she'll just sit in the back and cook and no one would know that she's back there. I do struggle, but I bring the cart back with her in my arms. Well, as long as you're returning the cart. Um, but this is one of those things, you know, one, one of those areas of kind of absurd paranoia in our culture. When, like, yes, obviously, if it's 100 degrees outside, uh, you're not going to leave your kid in the car for any extended length of time because that's extremely dangerous and you're going to kill them. But that, so that's, that's clear or should be clear that you shouldn't be doing that. But in a lot of cases, that's now morphed into if it's 65 degrees out, you can't leave your kid in a locked car for a minute to go return a, a shopping cart or even like just run into the gas station real quick and buy something and come out. That doesn't make any sense. It's That's paranoia. There's really nothing behind it. And, uh, but I also understand if she's one and you're a new parent, you're going to be paranoid. I get it. Um, look, and who am I to talk about paranoia? I still, before I go to bed each night, I go upstairs and I check all my kids to make sure they're still breathing. And I still do that. And my I, our oldest are eight years old. So, uh, and finally, this guy's the limit says, dear Matt's protesters, if you really want to blend in, head to the DW store and pick up a few SBG and Johnny the Walrus shirts and a few copies of the book helps to bring a leftist tears tumbler or two. That's a great idea. You know, I suggested and I, I gave the, the hint that if you want to be heterosexual passing as they said they want to be so they can blend in with the crowd, they can wear T-shirts that say I'm heterosexual because, of course, that's what all cisgender heterosexual people do. Even better, though, and I'm ashamed I didn't think of this, is that's right. Go to dailywire.com slash shop. Go to our store. Buy all the Matt Walsh merchandise, and then you'll blend in. And I'll get paid also at the same time. So kill two birds with one stone. Well, the day is almost here. Tomorrow, February 10th, will be the world premiere of Shut In, Daily Wire's first original film at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, over at Daily Wire YouTube. The suspenseful thriller follows a young mother trapped by her violent ex and his meth-addicted friend, and she must escape to save her children before it's too late. It's a tale of redemption to the beat of a seat-gripping thriller, and uh, I must say, it's a phenomenal piece of film as well. Check out the trailer. Lainey, where have you been? Jessica... I can smell the weakness from here. You had your way. No, stop! Let me out, please. Now you must pay. Don't you touch my kids. Your daughter, she's very pretty. I'm scared. The film premieres this Thursday, February 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central over at Daily Wire YouTube after this month's episode of Backstage. So make sure you click the link in the description and turn on the notification bell so you don't miss it because after the premiere, it's only available to Daily Wire members. And if you're not a member, head to dailywire.com slash subscribe and enter code SHUTIN for 30% off your membership. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. You know, there's always been racism in the world, um, and there always will be. Contrary to the convenient, ad hoc, arbitrary definition the left gives the word today, racism is simply the hatred toward or resentment of another group of people based on their skin color. Racism is its not a single word somebody says. It's not a joke they make. Racism also is not dependent on power structures or systems or institutions. Any old schlub can be a racist. And the racism of the least powerful is no more justified than the racism of the most powerful. Racism is not the exclusive domain of domain of one race or another. No race has a monopoly on racism, either as victim or perpetrator. And racism is not necessarily a crisis. Because if somebody is racist and their racism is largely rejected by the society they live in, then there's not a whole lot of harm that his racist thoughts can do. 
His racism is likely to remain mostly in his thoughts because it's not accepted by society where it damages him more than it damages anybody else. Where racism becomes truly dangerous is where it's accepted by the culture. Racism that society embraces, even celebrates, is the kind, it's the only kind that can cause widespread harm. It's the only kind that we really have to worry about. But given that society accepts this kind of racism, most people in society are not worried about it, which means always that the kind of racism everyone should worry about is, by definition, exactly the kind that they're not worrying about. And in our culture, of course, that is anti-white racism. It, it, it is only in a country that embraces and celebrates anti-white racism that something like this can exist. According to the film website Collider, filmmaker Sasha Jenkins has teamed up with Showtime to shine a light on institutionalized and systemic racism in a new docu-series titled Everything's Gonna Be All White. In the series trailer, viewers hear from multiple people of color speaking about their experiences with racism and the negative impact of whiteness in America. Set to debut, debut on February 11th, the three-part limited series will feature interviews with historians, artists, activists, cultural commentators, actors, and more. In a trailer that gives a may-trigger-white-people disclaimer at its start, several interviewees provide their commentary on everything from white fragility to the capital riots of January 2021. Through facts, historical events, and even some comedy, the trailer focuses its lens on the problematic systems that are in place to hold people of color down while elevating Caucasians. Well, this sounds bad already. You don't know the half of it. The trailer uh, for this thing came out a few days ago, and it is maybe the most unabashedly, gleefully racist thing you'll ever watch in your life. Take a look. I think what annoys me most about white people is when they pretend like they're the victim. <laughs> What's also annoying is when they, you know, when they kill us. We'll just stop there for a second to note that it is, it is certainly annoying to be killed. I, I, I agree with you there. But it's uh, very rare that a white person kills a black person. It's also comparatively rare that a black person kills a white person. White people tend to kill white people, and black people tend to kill black people. Black people make up a hugely disproportionate number of murder victims, but they're almost all killed by other black people. And as for interracial murder, which again is rare, more whites are killed by black people than black people by white people. Those are the facts, in case they matter to you. Back to the trailer. What is fragile about whiteness when everything has been constructed around it? Every part of who I am has been distorted or criminalized. It's really just a bunch of white lies. <laughs> you know, fragility is an interesting concept. Let me ask you this. When white people are told that there's a certain word they can't say in any context, that they can't even utter the syllables, no matter the reason or intention, because of the harm that word will do to members of, the, of another race. Where is the fragility there? Who's being fragile? When a black NFL coach cries that he's being oppressed because it took him more than three hours to find a new coaching job, is that fragility? See, as it turns out, there's quite a lot of fragility in our culture. But, but it's not that one race or another is fragile. There is, in fact, plenty of fragility among white people, too. It, it's, that, it's that fragility is cultivated among members of victim classes. They are treated as fragile, encouraged to be fragile, encouraged to be helpless, to be victims. That's where the fragility is. All right, let's go back to the trailer. You're the Capitol! You're not patriots. You're ridiculous. One of the definitions of American whiteness is ignorance. White people, we are not your problem. You are. Should white people today feel any responsibility for slavery? <laughs> Hell yeah. White Jesus or black Jesus? Jesus was not white. Think of geography. Ain't no way Jesus walked around with blonde hair and blue eyes. White culture fears the end of the world. For us as native people, the end of the world already happened like multiple times. Symbols and monuments, these are mementos of racism. Bring that statue down. What about TCBY yogurt or something? Everybody can get behind. <laughs> the truth has to be told about history. We have to make sure that these stories are told from our perspective. 
All right. Uh, I think it's probably about enough of that. You know, I often hear just on this on this uh, Jesus white Jesus thing. I, I I often hear it insisted that Jesus isn't white. Um, but the interesting thing is, I never hear anyone insisting that he is white. So race hustlers love to go on and on about the fact that Jesus didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, which is a bit like me running around telling everybody that George Washington wasn't a black guy from Nigeria. It's true, of course, that George Washington wasn't African. But by debunking that idea, I'm debunking something that I made up in my head in the first place. In a similar way, nobody ever said that Jesus looked like he's from Sweden. Now, you might see Jesus depicted with lighter skin in some art, but that's because nobody knows what Jesus looked like. And so his physical depictions, which are all essentially fictional, because there's no portrait provided to us in the Bible, so people are kind of making it up, that means his physical depictions are going to reflect the people who create the depiction. Black artists will probably tend to make Jesus look a little bit blacker, while white artists may tend to make him look a little bit whiter. Now, Jesus, I can assure you, is not offended by any of this. In fact, Jesus doesn't really care if we get his physical description exactly right. And I feel comfortable speaking for Jesus on this point. And I know that he doesn't care because if he did, he would have provided us with that description instead of leaving it so conspicuously absent from the record. And so what that means is that people, again, sort of make it up. And as artists, it's going to reflect their you know, it's, it's kind of reflect themselves in a certain way. That's fine. Not a problem. Now, you notice at the end of the clip, we're told that the stories of history, including the gospel story, I guess, must be told from our perspective, meaning the non-white perspective. Of course, anyone who tells a story is going to be tell it, telling it from their own perspective. Nobody is suggesting that black people shouldn't have a perspective or they shouldn't tell stories grounded in that perspective. But what he really means, what this documentary, along with critical race theory as a whole, is trying to get across, is that the stories of history and the story of America and the story of our culture, both past and present, present, must be told from a perspective that is actively antagonistic towards white people. That's what's really meant. Now think about this. Is there any country in the non-Western world where the culture is openly antagonistic to the nation's predominant race? Could something analogous to, to what I just played for you exist in any non-Western country? You know, something like that targeting the majority of the people in the country on racial grounds? Could there be any serious movement anywhere else to shame and demonize and exclude and marginalize the majority race in the country? Has anything like this ever existed anywhere in history? I think not. And it's gotten to this point now through years of conditioning. Not only the conditioning of non-white groups to hate white people and blame them for every problem, even and especially the problems that members of these other groups largely cause through their own choices. But on top of that, there has to have been a long and sustained effort to condition white people to hate themselves, hate who they are, loathe their own identity. It's probably not a coincidence that this is all happening at the same time that gender ideology takes hold. Because all of this comes down to a hatred and rejection of yourself. That's the only way that any of this stuff can happen. That's how we end up with that. The most ridiculously racist thing put on film in decades, easily. And you can watch it on Showtime this week. Which is why today we must say that Showtime is canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Lainey, where have you been? Jessica. I can smell weakness from here. You have-